This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today in our 317th episode, we have a brand new dinosaur, which is amazing, but is also being very controversial. So we're going to talk a lot about that. And we also have some lighter news from around dinosaur entertainment and things like that. Mm -hmm. And news of the dinosaur community coming together. We also have Dinosaur of the Day, Protohadros. And we have a fun fact, which is all about paleoparasitology because I had to go down and figure out what all we know about different parasites that might have impacted dinosaurs. So I got to the bottom of that. And that led to some disturbing images. It did, but fortunately this is an audio podcast, so you don't have to worry about that. But before we get into all of that, really quickly, we want to thank some of our patrons for keeping the podcast going. And we're recording this on Christmas Eve, 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 Eve. So <laughs> even more so thankful this time of year. And our 10 random drawing winners this week are DC Cassandra, Jared Copeland, Wouter, Melina and Manoli, Iwan, Paula Canthus, Lucas and Eli, Greg, Christine, and Chris. Yay, yeah, thank you so much for all of your support. And, you know, especially this time of year, we're especially thankful, though we are thankful year-round because that is what keeps us going with this podcast. And if you want to join our community, then check out our page at patreon.com slash inodino. So jumping into the news, this one is going to be a whole situation, but I'm going to go through the new dinosaur discovery first, and then we'll talk about the controversy behind it. But I always like to start with new dinosaurs when I can. So this new dinosaur was published in Cretaceous Research by Robert Smith and others, and they describe it as a maned theropod dinosaur mm -hmm. from Gondwana. Which is really cool. Yeah. The paleo art is cool. It is. There there are multiple different pieces of paleo art. There's one included with the paper, and then I've seen other pieces around the web too. So this one is a new compsognathid with some crazy feathers. And obviously everybody knows compsognathus from Jurassic Park, the Lost World. Mm -hmm. The compies, the little ones. Yeah, they like went after a little girl briefly. They eventually took down Dieter, the really famous scene where he's like harassing one of them and then a whole group of them gang up on him. And in those movies, obviously, they're portrayed as green, reptile-y, no feathers whatsoever. They look like a plucked chicken, basically. But in real life, they might have been feathered. We're not entirely sure. But this relative, obviously, in this new compsognathid that has feathers means that maybe other compsognathids were also feathered. So add that to the list of dinosaurs in Jurassic Park, which might need to have feathers added to them for <laughs> scientific accuracy. 
So this new dinosaur was found in the Crato Formation in northeast Brazil. It's from the Aptian to Albion in the Cretaceous. Very roughly, that's about 115 million years ago, plus or minus 5 to 10 million years. But yeah, so it would be in the quote-unquote early Cretaceous, but really basically the middle of the Cretaceous. Its name is Ubirajara jubatus, and Ubirajara is the Tupi name, meaning Lord of the Spear. It's a pretty cool name, and the Tupi is obviously a local language. And when I say Ubirajara, I'm using the Portugueseized version of the word because I don't know how to speak Tupi, and I couldn't find any pronunciation guide on that. But there is a city named Ubirajara in southeast Brazil, pretty far away from where this dinosaur is found, actually. Hmm. But since that's how they pronounce it and it's from the same country, that's just what I'm going with. And then jubatus is Latin for maned or crested. So it's like the crested lord of the spear if you want to combine the two names. I think it's a pretty cool name. Or maned since it's described as this maned theropod. Yeah, exactly. Is the sphere have anything to do with the art that of the stuff coming out of its shoulders? I don't know. I think so because it has these crazy long feathers. But I'll get to that in one second because I want to talk about what it is first. I think it's pretty cool that they found something like this in South America. It's a slab and counter slab, which is the kind of thing we often see in Asia, a little bit in Europe with like Archaeopteryx lithographica, where it's sort of smashed down into two dimensions. And then when you crack it open and you peel the, the fossil apart like a pressed leaf or something, you've got half of the dinosaur on one side and half on the other. And in this case too, as in many cases, some of the bones are stuck in one side of the slab and some are stuck in the counter slab as they call it. And I don't know even which one you consider the counter slab in this case, probably the one with less bones, I guess. But it's really cool. It's partially articulated, but it is pretty incomplete, unfortunately. So it's not as good as some of those Archaeopteryx or Microraptor finds that we're used to seeing. But it's got enough to show us feathers. It does. It also has all of the back vertebrae, some of the neck and sacral vertebrae, some ribs, gastralia, shoulder, forelimb, and most of the hand. So really we're missing the leg, missing the tail, missing the skull, and then missing the hips, I would say. And it's I think it's only ever one half of the animal. So it's like one arm and one set, maybe one side of the ribs to go with it. And a lot of stuff is kind of crushed too, which is often the case when they're in this sort of slab, counter slab look. They also found some good soft tissue stuff. In addition to the feathers, there's integument, claw sheaths, and a bunch of adiposere. And adiposere is also known as corpse wax. It's sort of well known. It's basically like partially decomposed soft tissue, in this case, dinosaur soft tissue. Huh. Yeah. It's just like, yeah, like something has partially, like bacteria and stuff has partially digested it and turned it into this sort of waxy, amorphous blob. <laughs> I'd never heard of that before. Yeah, it's a thing. It happens. Yeah. I think it might have to do with soap in some cases. <laughs> it's a whole weird thing. <laughs> but unfortunately, they thought there might be some gut contents in the middle of it. But when they did their scans of it, like x-ray scans and stuff, they couldn't find any. They just found sort of this generic adipocere stuff. The bacteria got to it. Yeah, exactly. Or maybe the guts might not have even been preserved at all. Hmm. That's too bad. From their skeletal, again, I'm basing this on just a skeletal drawing because they didn't specifically say the size of it, but I always like to share the rough size estimates. They have it at about 40 centimeters or a little bit over a foot tall, 
and about 1.3 meters or about four feet long, which puts it about the same size as Compsognathus, maybe a little bit bigger. Probably would have weighed roughly 10 pounds, but this might have been a juvenile. It's not entirely clear. They said that they think it might be a juvenile, so maybe it would have gotten a little bit bigger. We don't know. Hmm. It's also about 30 to 40 million years younger than Compsognathus, for the record. So anything about this could be the same as Compsognathus, or it could be quite a bit different. It's also found pretty far away from where Compsognathus is originally found. Although the fossil is now stored a lot closer to where Compsognathus was originally found. But that's that's part of the controversy. Mm. So I'll wait for that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but for the record, it is at the State Museum of Natural History, Karlruhe in Germany, not anywhere in Brazil. Like you said, yes, there are some really unusual feathers on it. They call them BMFIs, which stands for Broad Monofilamentous Integuments. What does that mean? Basically, like the monofilamentous integument thing is one of those feathers that looks more or less like a hair. It's more hair-like than it is like a feather with the veins and filaments sort of branching off of it. Oh, okay. These are the ones that are depicted coming out of its shoulders. Yes. So, yeah. And they're broad because they're, it's weird because they're broad, but they're a monofilament, mm. which isn't something usually if it's broad, that's because it's branched off and there's a bunch of stuff sticking off of the sides of it. But in this case, it's just a monofilament. It's like a huge coarse hair that's sort of flattened mm. is maybe the closest analog to it. It's not really anything like feathers we see. And that makes this dinosaur incredibly important for a couple of reasons. One is it's, quote, the first Gondwanan non-avian theropod with preserved filamentous integumentary structures, end quote, which basically means feathers in Gondwana. Mm -hmm. Pretty important. They describe different parts of it as a mane. There are things they describe as ribbons and hair-like. So there's several different sort of types of feathers on this animal. Yeah, it's interesting to think of it as ribbons dinosaurs and ribbons yeah i think it's i was looking at some of the modern analogs to this dinosaur and i think ribbons are a pretty good description in that if you're imagining like ribbon dancing that gymnastics sort of thing where you have the stick with the long ribbon on it that kind of ribbon mm -hmm. is how i would think of it not like a ribbon that's fixed in place it's mm -hmm. more like a, a free-flowing sort of thing and long yes they are about four by 150 millimeters, roughly, which makes them about an eighth of an inch wide and about half a foot long. So yeah, really narrowed, really long in a lot. I mean, it's just crazy. A six inch long feather, which is just one single filament and it's only a few millimeters wide. That's a really weird look. <laughs> I wonder if it, I wonder if they used it like how cats have whiskers. So they think it was probably a display structure. Okay. But I guess maybe... They could. I don't know. They, right. That wasn't in any of the stuff that I read about it. But it's fun to think about or maybe to make them look larger or something. Yeah. Actually, now that you mention it, one of the things with Ubi Rajara is it has a sort of kiwi looking vibe to it from some of the paleo art when I look at it because it's got really small arms mm -hmm. and it's all fluffy and it's got long legs. So it kind of reminds me a little bit of a kiwi and kiwis do have that. They have some really simple feathers, which essentially function like a whisker. I think they're on like the end of its nose or maybe by its eyes. I can't remember exactly where they are, but yeah. So feathers can evolve to be similar to whiskers. 
And especially if there's something that wants to like dig or, you know, they're like a cat and they need to squeeze through narrow openings or something. I, I would guess they're probably not flying much if they have whiskers, mm -hmm. but who knows? Yeah, everything exists, seems to exist that you can imagine. So, <laughs> yeah, I don't think that was the case with these really long feathers, though. Part of the reason that I think they might not be whisker analogs is that they stick out in sort of a pair and one of them is longer than the other one. They think that one of them probably stuck more up out of its body and one of them might have stuck more out to the side. So it would have been significantly taller and wider than the animal. Usually whiskers are like the same width of the animal, but these are so long that they would have really stuck out quite a bit farther. So it seems more like a display structure kind of thing. Mm. If they are display structures, it would be really weird that a juvenile would have such elaborate display structures because we always talk about, say, with ceratopsians or hadrosaurs with a big head crest or anything like that, that usually we assume the adults had these big display structures. And when they were juveniles, they didn't have much because they're not trying to impress anybody. Mm -hmm. They're just trying to grow up and <laughs> survive. They're not interested in finding a mate. Right. Unless it's intraspecies recognition or something. Yeah, that's a really good point. And interestingly, there is a case, there's this dinosaur Wulong we talked about a year or two ago, which I said looked kind of like the resplendent Quetzal, which is this bird that has these really long feathers, sort of similar to this, I guess, but they come out of the tail. It's just like crazy long feathers. They look ridiculous <laughs> when you see them. But yeah, so there's Wulong that has that just like the resplendent Quetzal. But with Wulong, they also thought it was a juvenile. So maybe with dinosaurs, they got these features that were used for sexual display, but they also used them for species recognition, or they just, for whatever reason, maybe feathers are easy, easy enough to grow when they're young and they just grow them when they're young. And I don't know. It's interesting though, now that we have two different cases of people think it's a juvenile and it has these crazy display feathers. There could be multiple uses too, and we just don't know yet. Yeah, that's true. From the paleo art, one of the pieces, the one that's not official <laughs> with the paper, shows it as a lot fluffier, and especially it has a very fluffy tail, and I thought that looked adorable. It's in, <laughs> that one's entirely covered with feathers, but the piece that's included with the paper has a significantly less fluffy tail, and I think the disparity there is we didn't find any of the tail, but what we did find was the it's almost like hair i keep wanting to call it hair but really the the short feather fluff mm -hmm. <laughs> on the neck was a lot shorter and then as it went back onto its back like getting nearer to the hips that's where it started to get really long and that's actually the part they describe as a mane hmm. so it's sort of a weird thing to call a mane because it's like near the hips which isn't what you think of with a mane you think like around the neck usually but the placement or the kind of way it sits on its back looks maneish yeah just cuz it's a big fluffy thing, I guess. <laughs> That's what manes are. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I guess one assumption could be that it was rising and then it stayed pretty thick all the way down the length of the tail. Or you could assume that it was more like a Spinosaurus or something where it had a big rise on its back, then it went down again when it got to the tail and then it had a thin tail after that. It's really just 100% conjecture at this point. But in the fossil, you can see a lot of fur-like feathers along its back. They're pretty well preserved there. Mm, that's fun. Yeah. And there's also a little bit, I think, on the arms, or I should say forelimbs, and also on the neck. Just And it's much shorter, like I said, in those spots. Based on some of the other details 
with the skin because there's a little bit sort of preserved. They think they can see individual follicles and the structure of these follicles might indicate that Ubirajara could raise or lower the follicles at will, sort of like puffing up or, you know, sort of like we do when we get goosebumps, mm -hmm. raise the follicles. Raise the hackles. Yeah. <laughs> that just makes me think of birds of prey when they kind of raise that up and how scary that might look. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it'd be very useful to be able to basically inflate like a puffer fish or something to mm -hmm. look bigger, more intimidating. Show anger. Yeah. Or with dinosaurs when they're doing mating displays today, mm -hmm. right? They puff up different feathers like a peacock or do all sorts, sometimes different sides of the feathers are different colors mm -hmm. and they can show off different things by moving them around a little bit. That's true. And you think about some birds today have some crazy long feathers too that sort of dangle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like that quetzal. Since the forearm is preserved, we can tell that it had short arms with small three-fingered hands, which is pretty interesting, showing that these feathers probably had nothing to do with flight because it did not have anything close to a wing. And neither of the paleoart even tried to make it look at all like a wing because the arms are pretty similar to Compsognathus. It's just like these little relatively small, even for its size, like if not quite like T-Rex short or a Carnotaurus short, but they couldn't reach the ground even in front of it. Whereas wings, you know, would be, you can basically touch the ground with their elbows mm -hmm. <laughs> if they want to, their arms are so long. So yeah, this is not a flying creature. It's not a wing assisted inclined running situation with these feathers. It seems like it's purely either for display or thermoregulation or something else not involving flight, I right. would say. I guess there is always the possibility that it evolved from something that could fly and it sort of secondarily lost that and is like a kiwi that way or, or something. Or it was though. on its way to evolving flight again. Maybe. I don't know, though, because the, the arms are so short. Mm. Another cool detail is they have cloth sheaths that were preserved. That keratin sheath that covers the bone extended the claws by about 40% past the end of the bone and made them about one inch long. Hmm. So even though this was a short, you know, only about a foot tall dinosaur and it had really short arms and everything, it still had inch long claws on it. So it, <laughs> it still could do some damage. And, you know, they're a lot sharper too with that extra keratin on them. So yeah. it seems to be the case for all claws on dinosaurs. Yeah. They're intense. I mean, even on the toes of herbivores, they tend to have pretty intense looking claws. They're just, they're menacing creatures. But sometimes fluffy. Yes. Like you were saying how the long BMFIs are sticking out of the shoulders. Mm -hmm. That is how both of the pieces of paleoart have it, literally sticking out of the back like they're in the back skin. But the authors do say, quote, it is also conceivable that the BMFIs have become displaced from a position on the forelimb, end quote. I think that's pretty important. Actually, when you look at the slab and counter slab, the BMFIs aren't really near anything. They're sort of coming out of that corpse wax blob. Mm -hmm. <laughs> They're not really near the forelimb or the back. They're sort of just off to the side. So I would say we don't have a great reason for thinking that they came from any specific point whatsoever. Mm, so the ribbons could have been other parts of the body. Yeah. And I actually think, as someone pointed out on the dinosaur mailing list, that it might be more likely that these feathers actually were on the arms instead of on just the shoulders, partly because compsognathid forelimbs were generally small and presumably unimportant. So 
It's not like having these long feathers on the forelimbs is going to really reduce their ability to use their forelimbs in a way that's super important to them because it seems like they're mostly using their mouths or sort of like T-Rex. If T-Rex had big display structures on its arms, you know, what does it matter? <laughs> it's not using them for much else anyway. So I think that is a good argument for it. In addition, they do compare this dinosaur. They say it's superficially similar to the male standard wing bird of paradise. Hmm. And just like how with Wulong, there's that resplendent Quetzal that has almost the exact same feathers. The feathers on the standard wing bird of paradise are really, really similar to Ubi Rajara. Basically, it's these pairs of feathers, just like we think Ubi Rajara had. They're on both of its shoulders when its wings are folded. And when it does a mating display, since they're on its wings, it can fold them in different ways and it can make them bounce all over the place just like ribbons basically in that hmm. same sort of way they can like fling them all over the place to its own ribbon dance yeah it's really cool so i want to mention a little bit more about the standard wing bird of paradise because it's pretty cool so technically the feathers on it the really long feathers that it uses for these display dances are on its wrist because birds again their whole arm is their wing but their wrist is basically in the middle so their hand is really long too and then the top of their arm is actually shortened relative to their hand so halfway down their wing is their wrist and that's where these really long feathers stick out so what they can do is they can kind of like if you put your hands at your sides so that your like wrists are touching your armpits and then like do jazz hands that's kind of what they do <laughs> and then at the same time they're since they have these feathers sticking out of their wrists those point up above its head because they have their wrists basically at the base of their neck and then they can like jiggle their wrists while moving their fingers and then <laughs> it's it's pretty fancy i like your do. demonstration <laughs> this could be a fun new dinosaur dance I mean, it already is a, a new dinosaur dance. I mean, well, if people were mimicking dinosaurs. That's true, yeah. It's pretty cool. I, I think it's a, a pretty good argument for why Ubi Rajara might have had these feathers on its wrist and not just on its back. It's kind of weird, though, because since Ubi Rajara has such short arms and they're basically below it, it wouldn't have been able to get the feathers maybe up so high, but maybe it would have just stuck them out to the sides or, you know, up from beneath its body or something i don't know who knows what the other ubi rajara thought was impressive in terms of these feather dances but i think that's probably the best guess and interestingly too if these do happen to be a sexual display structure it might indicate that this individual was a male it's unclear because we only have the one but if we can find some more then maybe the males have the feathers and the females don't yeah, but that's going to be really hard to tell, even if you have multiple. Yeah, because then people might argue it's just a different species. It's, yeah, it's hard. One other reason this fossil is really important is it's, quote, the first non-manoraptorin possessing elaborate and tegumentary structures that were most likely used for display, end quote. In other words, Compsognathids usually aren't considered manoraptorins, and that's the group that broadly evolved into birds, although sometimes they are placed in there. Their placement is a little bit uncertain, but this does show that even if they are manoraptorins, they're not like derived manoraptorins. So that would show you that this whole display feather structure thing that was going on in theropods was in a broader group than we previously knew. So it's like it's not only expanding the 
location where dinosaurs had these impressive feathers to Gondwana, which we didn't have before. It's also ex expanding within the family tree of how many dinosaurs had feathers. The feathers are spreading. <laughs> yeah. It's not surprising because we know that pterosaurs had proto feathers too. So if proto feathers are on pterosaurs, then every dinosaur should have a gene that would produce it because we kind of assume the common ancestor might have it at that point. And these are pretty simple proto feathers. It's a, they're very large, mm -hmm. <laughs> but they're not complex structures with all the... They're monofilaments. Yeah, exactly. BMFIs. <laughs> so, yeah. Pretty cool. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a Brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. <laughs> Good for us as scientists. <laughs> mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Unfortunately, though, there is a lot of controversy about Ubi Rajara. The first obvious thing is that none of the authors listed on the paper list a Brazilian affiliation. So they don't work at Brazilian museums or universities, basically. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think that's always the case. But basically, whenever you write a paper, you have to, there's like a little, either like a number or a letter for a footnote for every author on the paper. And then it'll say which place they're affiliated with. And I don't know if necessarily they have to work at it or how they select it, but it was basically the UK, Germany, and Mexico mm. were the only places listed. So nowhere in Brazil, which obviously is a little bit of a bummer since it's a Brazilian find. Now, the big contentious thing is whether or not this fossil was exported illegally and then what should be done about it. And this is a developing story too. 
So what we're talking about is current as of this recording. There is probably going to be more stuff later. Yeah, it's like nonstop new people saying new bits of information about this. So we might have an update. But in the paper itself, the authors claim that they got permission in 1995 to export the fossils. But others claim that they didn't get the right permission or that holotypes can never be exported. So it doesn't matter what type of permission that they got. From Brazil specifically. Yes. To most dinosaur fans, I think it's just nice that it's in a museum being stored properly and available for research because either way, whichever side of the argument wins, it's going to stay in a museum and a public museum and it's still going to be available for research. So this isn't something like Stan being sold into a private collection or like some of the dinosaurs that get smuggled out of Mongolia and then sold into private collections and then get repatriated back and then end up in a museum. This is already in a museum. So I think it's a little bit less controversial, at least in that way. And I definitely agree that fossils should generally stay as close to their origin as possible. Yeah. And there's a lot of good reasons for that. One of them is, for example, just having the fossil nearby where it was found, you can easily go back to the locality for more data later if you need it. Yeah. And having the local researchers involved with it and having like a local science institution there, yeah, definitely helps when you need more information, having local experts that know the fauna of that area and just don't have like a broad swath of like the whole world that they might know a little bit about. It also helps to get people in the area excited about dinosaurs and science. Sometimes people aren't even aware that there are dinosaurs around them or in extreme cases, what dinosaurs are, period. Mm -hmm. So having a museum nearby with dinosaur fossils from their area in it can be super useful in education. It can also be really good for the economy and boosting local tourism and providing jobs too in the area that are paleontology related. Yeah, that's true. I'm not sure in this case, since I don't know the Brazilian laws that well, but if you can dig them up and make money off of them, that definitely creates more jobs. <laughs> yeah. But even if it's for scientific research, it definitely creates some jobs in the country. What well, on the tourism side too. Yes, that's true. You get more visitors. And it helps in a lot of ways that way. Could be like Drumheller, where it's just tons of dinosaur everything. Mm -hmm. I also think it's really helpful because it can help to get more people out there looking for dinosaurs. The museums can have volunteer programs where you go out and they help excavate, find more stuff. If there are more people in the area that know about the dinosaurs, they're more likely to discover the fossils and get more fossils, which can lead to more interest, which can lead to more research, which can lead back to more fossils and sort of <laughs> compound. And then you get more and more people interested in dinosaurs and more research happening in a really great way. But if the fossils are just exported, then you know you don't get that nice feedback loop and you really do need a lot of people out there looking because there's only a short window to collect a fossil before weather destroys it. And there's a lot of weather in Northeast Brazil. Mm -hmm. So if people come by once every 20 years from another country and look for fossils there, they could lose a lot of stuff in the meantime. It's better to have people there that are looking all the time. And that process in general has improved a lot in Brazil since the 1990s. There was a lot less interest there in the past, but it's really picked up quite a bit of steam in recent decades. And one of the big things that happens is in countries where there are laws restricting exporting fossils, sometimes they're not enforced that much if people aren't interested in it or if there isn't enough of a community there 
interested in researching the fossils. And so this is basically what happened in Mongolia, where for a long time people were exporting fossils from Mongolia and technically it wasn't allowed, but nobody ever enforced it. So people figured, okay, people there are making money off of it. It's helping people's livelihoods. So let's not worry about it. And then Mongolia really cracked down and they were like, we want all our fossils back that were illegally exported. And a lot of people were upset because they were like, I bought this at an auction. I didn't realize that it had been smuggled. So it can lead to some big battles. Like and Nicolas Cage and the Tarbosaurus. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> That's one famous example. He had a illegally exported Mongolian fossil, probably without realizing it. Although I should point out, every Tarbosaurus anywhere is illegal to own outside of Mongolia or even in Mongolia, because I think they have to be in museums there because Tarbosaurus is from Mongolia. And it's only known from Mongolia. Yeah. So if you can get a T-Rex like Stan, it's it's legal to buy those from most land in the U.S. Although you can't get it from certain land, like with Sue, you can get into trouble that way too. But in general, Tarbosaurus, you're not allowed to own it. So don't even try. Get a replica. On the ethical side of things, I think it's obviously a bad look when countries remove important things from other countries, especially when the origin country has indicated they want to keep the fossils. And in Brazil, collecting and exporting fossils has required permits since 1942, if not earlier. So by 1995, it was definitely the case that they needed a permit in order to export this. But again, the authors did get permission to export the fossils, they think. But According to the Brazilian people who want the fossil to be repatriated, they're saying that an individual in this office who would have been the one to give permission to export it didn't have the authority to do it because it was illegal to export holotype material. And some people are saying you can't permanently export anything. It always has to be on a loan. So there's a lot of it's to me, it's a lot like the dueling dinosaurs where it's a legal battle going on between what was allowed, what wasn't allowed, where does this fit within the law? Is it on this department who basically, they basically gave a blank check saying you can export the stuff that you dug up without naming what it was, but is it the department's fault for not asking specifically what they were exporting? Or was it the people who dug up the dinosaur's fault for not filling it out really thoroughly so that the administration could say, oh, wait, that's a holotype. You can't export that. Mm -hmm. I don't know. That's for like a court or for these museums to work out with each other. There's also been a lot of comparisons to Burmese amber. And I just want to point out, I think that's a terrible comparison. First of all, no one is selling these fossils. So there's no issue with like we're funding a war, which is basically the issue with the Burmese amber. That is not at all happening here. It's really just about where the fossils are are housed. It's not an ethical issue of funding war. That's I mean, that's just like, to me, it's ridiculous to make that comparison. I don't think anybody should say that. And not too many people have been making that comparison. The one that seems more similar to me is the comparison to Mongolian fossils. Yes. But I, I actually think closer is stuff that happens in the U.S. For example, Zool is probably the best comparison. <laughs> well, so, Zool's Canadian, right? Well, Zool was found in Montana. Right. And it got exported to Canada, and it's now stored at the Royal Ontario Museum. So it, like, was exported to another country. It's a holotype. There's probably people in the U.S. that would prefer it to be in the U.S. But, I mean... I'm totally fine with it because it's in a museum. So to me, that's closer to what this is. I think with Zool, it's a little bit different because 
Ontario is not that far from Montana. You don't have to cross an ocean to get to it. Mm-hmm. And the fauna where it's stored is relatively similar. So it's it's sort of stored among similar dinosaurs from a, a similar time and things like that. But yeah, it when it's in a museum, I'm generally happy. Another kind of ridiculous one is I've seen a little bit of hinting that if this were to have stayed in Brazil, it might have been at the National Museum in Rio, which recently burned down, and then this fossil might have been destroyed if it were stored there. I see it as just sort of a silver lining of it being stored in the wrong place, (laughs) is that it survived any possibility of being destroyed. I don't even know specifically if it would have been stored there, right? because there are lots of museums in Brazil. Well, even if it was stored there, not all the fossils were destroyed. Very true. Yeah. But there's no way for us to know now. Yeah. And I mean, we know that holotypes of dinosaurs have been destroyed in Germany in the past as well. Yes. Like Munich and yeah, Spinosaurus. Exactly. So really, that's a separate issue. We just need to digitize everything and get good replicas because a fossil can get destroyed anywhere. There's no sense in pointing fingers at different countries for losing fossils. Preserve the ribbons. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so a couple of proposed resolutions that we've seen. There have been some very fiery comments, some since deleted on places like Twitter, which is good because if you say something terrible on Twitter, feel free to delete it. There's enough negative stuff on Twitter. We don't need more of it. But one, I thought, resolution that was floated, which was pretty reasonable, was I believe this was one of the authors got interviewed about it, but it may have just been another German scientist proposing that the German museum displays Ubi Rajara for a few years and then returns it to Brazil on a permanent basis, and then they just have it forever. I kind of like that because it takes a lot of work to prepare these fossils and to write the paper about it. So I can understand the argument that they would want to have it for a brief period of time if there's something else they're working on with it. I think from now on, definitely every paper that comes out about this has to have a Brazilian researcher on it because there is a law that basically says you're never allowed to do paleontology in Brazil without working with local paleontologists. Mm -hmm. So I don't know how they missed that. I don't know why there isn't at least one Brazilian paleontologist on this paper. But yeah, going forward, there there definitely needs to be. Maybe because they had it exported in 1995, so so much time has passed, people forgot. Yeah, my guess is it, it was just sort of either they overlooked it and didn't know it was a rule or they just figured it was too much of a burden to find somebody there and they figured they had the expertise on this type of dinosaur so they didn't see the value in it but it's the rule so just follow the rule i think you need to include these brazilian scientists for sure another option that's been floated is that they should retract the paper completely and basically either have brazilian researchers redo it or bring it back to brazil and then start from scratch I don't really like that idea. The whole idea of science is that you have different people giving their perspectives on things and, you know, moving forward. And It's pretty rare to retract a paper. Yeah. And retracting it because the wrong person published it, I don't, it just, there's more to publish on this, right? Like if you give it back to a Brazilian research institution, they can publish other stuff on it. I think the name is pretty good, right? It's, it meant, it was meant to honor its Brazilian heritage. So I don't see an issue with that. That would be one potential advantage to retracting the paper is you could rename it. Apparently, the paper has been suspended, but not retracted. I don't really know what that means. Maybe it's temporary 
until things get worked out. Yeah, it sounds like they're they're waiting for the researchers and the Brazilian government to figure their stuff out. And then, I don't know, maybe they'll add more authors to the paper. That would be good. You could have some Brazilian researchers get involved with it, make some edits, and then re-release it. I don't think it's technically been printed yet. We're still in this weird world where things have to be printed to be official, even though it's been published online. The publication print date hasn't happened yet. So people are a little bit confused whether or not the name has officially taken effect yet. Mm-hmm. So it's it's sort of up in the air in a lot of ways. <laughs> I give it a few more years. Yeah. Hopefully, I mean, it's a really cool find. I'm glad that it's going to stay in a museum somewhere because nobody's potentially taking it into a private collection. That's not at issue here. So I see it as an awesome find. I'm pretty sure it's going to end up back in Brazil sooner or later. So for people who want that to happen, that's good news too. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I mean, we already learned a lot about it. So it's all good. It'll, I think it'll work out. I think. Just take some time. Yeah. Tempers are flaring, but I, I think we'll be back to people working together nicely soon, hopefully. Speaking of people working together nicely, you got a couple holiday-related stories. So the first one, there was this really fun story about a dinosaur menorah that's on sale. It's specifically this gold lunging T-Rex, and it's got the nine candle holders on its back. And there's this man, Benjamin Packard, who's from Oakland, California. He's been making and selling these menorahs for a few years. And it started one day he saw one on sale on Etsy, but that one was too expensive. So his sister made one herself. She used glue and gold spray and (laughs) painted one of her kids' dinosaur toys. And Benjamin was looking for a hobby at the time. So he bought some plastic dinosaur toys and made his own menorahs like his sister's. And apparently they sold really well online. In his first year, he sold between 50 and 100. So the next year, he ordered more dinosaurs and created them in his parents' garage. He sold 300. And then... The year after, he had so many orders, he had to hire someone to help him make these menorahs. And he worked with the original seller to improve his design. At one point, he used nine millimeter bullet casings to hold the candles. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So after about three years, he's getting a thousand orders each season. So he ended up outsourcing to China. And he's got two young kids now. He said after he sells all the menorahs that he had made in China, he'll probably stop selling them so he could spend time with his family during Hanukkah. That makes sense. Yeah. And then he'll have like a couple in the attic and one day the kids will find it and he can tell them the story. (laughs) In Glasgow, Virginia, the town had a lighting of the dinosaur event to celebrate their dinosaur coming back after renovation. So their dinosaur is a sauropod. It's now the town's mascot, but decades ago it started off as a Halloween prank by local artist Mark Klein. And this year for the lighting of the dinosaur event, they had the dinosaur wrapped in lights and it's got a red ornament bulb on the end of its snout. So I guess it looks kind of Rudolph-y. Rudolph a sauropod. That's an interesting combination. Yeah, why not? You're on all fours. You, you can't put a sauropod on a roof. That is too heavy. True. But if the sauropod could fly like Rudolph, then maybe it could just hover over the roof. <laughs> I suppose. I think Santa would ride its back. Not be pulled behind it. Sauropod's bigger than his sleigh, mm. I feel like. How would it hold the toys? You'd have like Dinotopia style. You'd have like a platform on oh, its back, is what I'm imagining. Yeah. That could be a fun story. So many things coming out of this episode. We got a new dinosaur dance, new dinosaur story ideas. <laughs> <laughs> In Scotland near Stirling, 
Blair Drummond Safari Park has a new World of Dinosaur exhibit. They've got 24 life-size animatronic dinosaurs. You can buy tickets online. And the park's open until 5 p.m. every day and then till 7 p.m. on Fridays and Saturdays this month. So if you're in Scotland and you're looking for a dinosaur activity to do outside, there you go. Get some news about the dinosaur animatronics for Universal's upcoming Beijing theme park, which I didn't know was happening. It's going to be a Jurassic World attraction. Nice. And based on some of the scene's photos, there's a T-Rex, Ankylosaurus, and then Indominus Rex. And it's going to be a resort and theme park opening May of 2021. The description for Jurassic World at the park reads, quote, Welcome to Jurassic World Isla Nublar. It is inspired by the blockbuster film Jurassic World. Gear up to meet face-to-face with the gigantic and frightening dinosaurs and experience an epic adventure back to 65 million years ago. Yeah, I think we might have heard about somebody working on that on the hush-hush that we couldn't share. Oh, okay. I remember hearing about a new ride, but I thought that one was in Florida. Didn't yeah, know about the one too. in Beijing. Yeah. In game news, Arc 2, which is the continuation of Arc Survival Evolved, released a trailer, and that's got Vin Diesel as Santiago, a war chief who fights dinosaurs. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's exactly <laughs> what it sounds like, which is weird and crazy. Yep. Also just weird to see Vin Diesel in this environment. More so than fighting dinosaurs, he's fighting weird hominid monster creature people. Yes. Well, he's fighting everything. Yeah. And then he ends up in some high-tech area. Yeah. So basically what Ark Survival Evolved would look like if you combined Vin Diesel, it's pretty much exactly what you would expect. Yes. And there's a lot of fans joking, this is the next Fast and Furious, but with dinosaurs. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and in video game form, because this is going to be another video game. Yes. Although apparently Studio Wildcard is also releasing a short animated series about the character Helena, and then it's going to feature Vin Diesel and a lot of other famous people. Yeah, they're really they're really ramping up the spinoffs, that arc. Yeah. So there's no release date yet for arc two, but some animals have already been confirmed to appear in it, and that includes T-Rex, Brontosaurus, and then pterosaurs and prehistoric birds. Yeah, you gotta have the dodo. That's a mainstay of the original arc. It's basically the only thing you can hunt for a while <laughs> before you have any weapons. And they're talking about some flying ones too. Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm kind of surprised they're making arc two. I feel like they still haven't finished the first arc. It's still got some pretty major bugs, but maybe they'll do better. But this way they can get Vin Diesel. <laughs> True. So you know. Yeah. The one, one of the nice things about the first arc is that the focus is very much on dinosaurs and other animals. It looks like they're really ramping up this rival group of hominids, which I guess could be fun because then you don't have to just fight dinosaurs the whole time. You could use your dinosaur. Mm-hmm. Train them. them. Yeah. So that, that could be good. We'll have to see how it plays out. We still have our arc survival evolved server for our patrons, by the way. So speaking of dinosaurs battling... This was a really interesting story I came across, and it's it's a weird link between Mars attacks and dinosaurs. So Paleo Media wrote about it, and it's about how there was almost a rival for Jurassic Park in the form of Dinosaurs Attack as a movie hmm. that Tim Burton briefly considered, or it, it sounded more like he heard the pitch for it, though, so it didn't get too far down, but... If it sounds like Mars Attacks, Dinosaurs Attacks, that's because they're related. And Mars Attacks, Tim Burton did direct. 
Both of them are card games, which I had no idea. Before they were movies? Mm Mm-hmm. So the Mars Attacks card game had been around since the 1960s, and it was really popular but controversial because it was meant for kids, but some of the cards were really graphic and there was a lot of violence. And so Tim Burton and Warner Brothers had acquired the rights to Mars Attacks around the time that Jurassic Park came out. Mars Attacks came out in 1996. And there had apparently been talks to turn this into a movie since the mid-1980s. Then in 1993, one of Tim Burton's collaborators and screenwriters, Jonathan Gems, pitched Burton about both Mars Attacks and Dinosaurs Attacks. But Burton thought, well, Dinosaurs Attacks would be too similar to Jurassic Park. So they went full on into Mars Attacks mode. (laughs) (laughs) And also the Dinosaurs Attack game wasn't as popular as Mars Attacks. But in the game, there's this time travel experiment gone awry, and now the dinosaurs and other prehistoric creatures, they're in modern day, and they're killing people and destroying cities. And these cards are also graphic, like the Mars Attacks one. And apparently people are, quote, impaled on ankylosaur spines, torn in half by pterosaurs, swarmed by vampiric trilobites, (laughs) hounded by giant carboniferous insects, and burnt alive by, wait for it, dinosaur Satan. Actual name, the supreme monstrosity, but nicknamed by fans because of his demonic appearance, end quote. (laughs) That sounds pretty awesome. Yeah. So there's 55 cards. There's only one dinosaur in them that isn't shown killing someone. And that's a Trachodon. That makes sense. Trachodon is, even though dubious, is sort of (laughs) a hadrosaur. And hadrosaurs never hurt nobody. Eh, There might be another hadrosaur card in there that's violent. I don't know. (laughs) That's true. With 55 of them, that's likely the case. Yes. Oh, apparently there's also a Dinosaurs Attack comic, which fleshes out the story of the cards. And that would be really interesting if this eventually got turned into a movie. I don't see, it's crazy to me that they said they couldn't make Dinosaurs Attack three years after Jurassic Park because it's like, oh, that's too much dinosaurs. But I feel like there was definitely another alien movie in that three-year period. That's a good point. How come people aren't like, oh, there's too many alien movies? Well, I think Paleomita went into that. I can't remember the details now, but yeah, Independence Day came out around the same time. So there's tons of alien movies and there's like one dinosaur movie series, (laughs) like at least a big blockbuster series. We need more. I mean, Tammy and the T-Rex came out shortly after, so. That does not count as a blockbuster movie. (laughs) (laughs) That is like C-real. It's not even B-real. It's just like straight up garbage. (laughs) No one should watch Tammy and the (laughs) T-Rex. Well, at least we got the TV show. Although that, I guess, started before Jurassic Oh, Dinosaurs, the Brian slash Jim Henson production. Mm -hmm. That's true. Yeah. Which leads me to my next story. That TV show is coming to Disney Plus on January 29th. Nice. Yep. We knew it was coming a while ago. It's taken some time. We'd heard it was coming sometime in the fall, but now we've got an actual date, which is not not in the fall. (laughs) (laughs) So Brian Henson, he recently did an interview on Collider and he talked about how it was kind of a weird time to make the show because his dad had just died and he was only 26 years old at the time and taking over the company. Wow. Yeah. Which I never thought about that before. And at the time, Jim Henson was selling the company to Disney, but then for tax reasons, I guess Disney felt like they couldn't complete the deal. And Brian Henson said that was okay, but then they got into a fight while they were still trying to make the Dinosaurs TV show for Disney because it was on ABC. 
And he said, quote, it was a show that benefited from lack of experience. <laughs> and he said it was this kind of progression from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, which they made really quickly with no money. And it sounds like from the beginning, they knew the show's ending. Wow. Shows are always better when you know the ending and you don't have a lost situation where you get to the end and they try to slap something together and it doesn't make any sense. I disagree. How I Met Your Mother. Yeah, but it had a terrible ending and they didn't come up with it in advance. Doesn't they that prove my point? No, they had the ending in mind the entire time and it was terrible, but they didn't <laughs> want to change it. <laughs> I mean, I guess if you write a terrible ending, it's going to be terrible no matter what. It could have worked if the show didn't last as long as it did, but because it got so popular and then they added all these things, they could have changed it a little. But anyway, this is not a show about How I Met Your Mother. That's this is true. a show about dinosaurs. But in general, I agree with you that shows should be shorter. When you ever ever have like over five seasons of something, they always start grasping at straws and doing weird plot lines that well, are unnecessary. That's if you haven't plotted it out further than five seasons or whatever. Yeah. It's possible if you had 10 years in mind, then sure. <laughs> I suppose. That's just hard to do because you never know with funding and all that. Anyway, <laughs> so Brian Henson in this interview, he said, quote, the idea that we could tell these powerful dark stories with heavy thematic undertones, but do it in these goofy, ignorant dinosaurs are so irresponsible that they will eventually bring about their own extinction, which was the gem of the idea. That was the idea of it always. That was my dad's idea before he died, end quote. It is a really fun idea. It was a really sad ending. Spoiler alert. <laughs> and it's going on 30-ish years, so. Yeah. No, it's not really a spoiler. <laughs> so Brian Henson said that they only had a week to make each episode every week to keep up with the airing order. And then if they fell behind the network, the network would sue them. This all shows back in the day. Oh, man. And he said it took three weeks to make the first episode. And that was really difficult, but they knew they had to do it. So they were able to make one a week, which is impressive when you think about it took three people to do at least three people, I think, for each puppet. Yeah, you have the person in the suit, you have the person with the animatronics of the face, and then you have the voice mm -hmm. person. Not to mention, you know, all the sets and the writing and directing and everything else that goes in, into it. And they often worked 14-hour days. And he said he could never do that schedule again now. He said in terms of the themes of the show, quote, we were ahead of our time, I guess, but we were pulling a lot of our themes from All in the Family, which was years and years before us, and even the Honeymooners before that. Yes, we were ahead of our time, but isn't it sad that we were having the same issues not only decade after decade, but generation after generation? It's sad. <laughs> Sounds like he's a little depressed, that Brian Henson. I think he needs a hug. Yeah. Anyway, I am looking forward to rewatching the series. Yeah, me too. Yeah, I wonder if they'll like remaster it or anything to make it, because I have some old version of it. I don't know if it's from DVD or VHS or what, but it's pretty hard to watch on modern TVs. Mm-hmm. I want to see the details of the puppets. Mm-hmm. Me too. Maybe they'll have some cool behind-the-scenes stuff because they do that on Disney Plus sometimes. Oh, yeah. That'd be great. In other news, paleontologist Jim Kirkland recently spent some time in the hospital. You might have seen this on Twitter. Due to chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, COPD. So there's a GoFundMe to help him and his family with medical expenses because it's going to include a lot of specialized care and equipment. And if the name sounds familiar, Jim is Utah's state paleontologist, and he's known for many, many dinosaur discoveries, including Utah Raptor, Gastonia, Diabloceratops, and a lot more. Yeah, he's Utah's largest paleontological evangelist, I would say, <laughs> every mm -hmm. time you see him. It's like, oh, did you know this thing's in Utah? <laughs> mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, and he's a lot of fun to talk to. Not at all afraid to share his wealth of knowledge. We interviewed him on the show at some point Mm -hmm. a while back. We talked about Utah Raptor. Yes. And the role it plays in Jurassic Park. And he's got the Utah Raptor project with the huge block of tons of Utah Raptors that they're trying to excavate as well. Mm -hmm. So we'll post a link. A lot of people have already given, which is great to see this dinosaur community rally around him in really a matter of hours because I just saw a few hours ago they they posted this they already raised a bunch of money for him nice and last up I'm doing our last news story it feels weird twist yeah but it's kind of goofy so I didn't want to interrupt the other stories this one is a video of a supposed triceratops getting off a truck in Thailand and it's just kind of fun because Obviously, it's not real. Yeah. Well, I'll say it's a really good puppet. It is a good puppet. And it is, in fact, in Thailand. And it is, in fact, getting off of a truck. But yeah, it's definitely a puppet and not a real Triceratops. Just like how Steven Spielberg did not shoot a Triceratops. (laughs) Yeah, I was thinking that same thing. Like these Triceratops puppets are apparently very convincing to people because they're always thinking they're real animals. But yeah, definitely not. In the video, too, if you've ever seen one of these dinosaur puppets in person and you know they have like their quote unquote dinosaur handlers that are around the puppet and really what they're doing is they're sort of keeping people at a certain distance away from it and helping to guide the person in the costume. It's really obvious that that's what's happening in this video, too. They even have to like lift it off the truck sort Mm -hmm. of and they like cut past that part of it because it would have been really obvious that it was people in there and probably looked really awkward. Right. But we Having been in a puppet like that, yeah, it would be really difficult to move it around. Yeah, for sure. And in this one, too, it's even more difficult than some of the ones we've seen or and or been in because the feet are like inside dinosaur feet. That's why you can't see like a person's legs underneath it like you often can. Mm-hmm. And that would make it a lot more realistic, except the feet are incredibly unrealistic. They look nothing like a dinosaur foot in any way whatsoever. They don't even look like an elephant foot. They're like less foot-like than an elephant foot. And they have this weird dent going into it. Like it's wearing like a really tight rubber band around its ankle or something, Hmm. which is probably just like a piece of elastic going around the human's foot inside of it or something. And Yeah, so the feet look nothing like feet. So if you were curious if it was an animal, just looking at the feet should be a dead giveaway that it's definitely a puppet. Apparently people weren't looking at the feet. Or they don't know what dinosaur feet looks like because they've seen too many like elephant looking feet. Mm. Because dinosaur feet, they're like modern dinosaur feet. They have toes and they like stick out a little bit from the actual leg. It's not just straight down. Right. Also, they're really bird-like. Yeah. The other interesting thing about this puppet is the horns were really sad and droopy. No. They're like, they go down below past the nasal horn, which isn't even that high. So they're like almost like falling down by its mouth. It's an Eeyore looking dinosaur, like Sarmientosaurus. A little bit. Yeah. I mean, it has its head more upright, but yeah, the, the horns are very sad. And the frill also is super weird. It has the horns kind of embedded in it. So rather than the epiosifications at the edge where it's just like little hornlets poking out of the edge, it looks like the horns are like tunneling through the frill. So there's like this ridge that goes out to the edge where each epiosification is. So that's well, okay, but based, based on how weird dinosaurs are and the wide variety, like maybe someday we'll find a dinosaur that had something like that. Maybe, but it's just not really how these epiosifications grow Mm. in any 
at least in any of the dozens of ceratopsians we found so far. Yeah, you're right, though, that we could find something kind of like it. We found a dinosaur with ribbons. Come on. That's true. Its face is also very weirdly short. It's mm. got this little tiny beak and a little tiny head. Really threw me out. I saw the thing and I was like, what is this even supposed to be? And then I saw the fake news title under it, like Triceratops found in Thailand. And I was like, this is supposed to be a Triceratops? Looks nothing like a Triceratops. And it looks <laughs> nothing like it's an actual dinosaur. But yeah, it was kind of cool. I think it might have been one of those two-person puppets, like a horse costume where there's a person in the back doing the back legs. Well, yeah, quadrupedal puppets are hard to navigate. Yeah, yeah. I was I watched pretty closely to see because the other main way to do it is you have the front leg control the back leg so they kind of like mimic each other. Mm -hmm. Maybe you have like the front left or your left leg control the back right leg so it's a little bit more natural if you could pull that off. But they looked more independent than that. So I think there was some poor guy in the back of it trying to keep up without being able to see much about where he was going. <laughs> Maybe the handlers were helping with that. Could be a poor gal too. Yes. But the puppet does do a good job of completely hiding the puppeteer's legs. So that's good. In another video, though, you can see the name of the dinosaur theme park in the background, mm. which is probably the most obvious giveaway that it's not a real dinosaur because you can just Google the name of that place right. and see that it's a puppet. Unless it's a real Jurassic Park situation. I mean, the website doesn't claim that. They just say, <laughs> you can come see our puppets. <laughs> well, it's a good publicity stunt. Yeah. I thought that was a fun one to debunk, though. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax. The way car buying should be. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Protohadros, which was a request from Dino Bo via our Patreon and Discord, so thanks. Protohadros was an ornithopod that lived in the late Cretaceous and what's now Texas in the U.S. It lived about 95 million years ago, and it was an herbivore. Its skull was about 28 inches or 70 centimeters long, and it's estimated to be 23 feet or 7 meters long and weigh 2 tons. The holotype of Protohadros was found in the Woodbine Formation in Texas and includes a partial skull, ribs, hand ungual. Also known as a finger yes. or a claw. Or hoof thing, yeah. Well, not in this case, but anyway. And a neural arch. The holotype was a subadult, so it may have gotten bigger. And it's not clear exactly what Protohadros looked like because there's only been fragments found. But based on the paleo art, it looks a lot like Edmontosaurus to me in its body shape. Its hind legs were probably longer than the front legs, and it could move quadrupedally or bipedally. Protohadros had these large, deep lower jaws and a snout that turned down at the front. It was possibly a low browser. It ate swamp plants that grew in delta streams and would have scooped up plants with its mouth. It could partially grind food. It had pleural kinesis, this cranial joint system, but the back of the skull was still pretty immobile. The type species is Protohadros birdi. Gary Bird found the ribs and ungual in 1994 at Flower Mound, Denton County in Texas, when he was examining a road, and he told Yong Nam Lee, who arranged the excavation. 
It was first reported then in 1996 by Jason Head from Dedman College of Humanities and Sciences, Southern Methodist University. So Jason described and officially named Protohadros in 1998, and the genus name means first hadrosaur. That's because Jason thought it was the oldest known hadrosaur at the time, and the species name is in honor of Gary Bird. So Protoceratops was first thought to be the most basal hadrosaurid, and at the time of discovery, it was thought to show that hadrosaurids didn't evolve in Asia, but now Protohadros is considered to be a less-derived iguanodontian. So it's considered to be a non-hadrosaurid iguanodontian and a basal member of hadrosauroidea. Oidea, not idae. Yes. In 1997, possible protohadros tracks were found. They were named the ichnospecies protohadrosaurichnos. Protohadros lived in a wooded marsh, and more fossils from smaller individuals, possibly juveniles or subadults, have been found at the Arlington Archosaur site near Dallas-Fort Worth, Texas. They're 30 to 50% smaller than the holotype. And many of them had crocodile bite marks. Huh. That's intense. Mm-hmm. You can see a reconstruction of the skull of Protohadros at the Perot Museum in Dallas, Texas. And our fun fact of the day is that coprolites or coprolites have preserved parasites on multiple occasions and multiple types of parasites. And this is true for dinosaurs as well. I never thought about that before, but that shouldn't surprise me. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It makes sense because obviously small things are easier to preserve or at least easier to spot in a coprolite because you're scanning something that can have a lot of different interesting stuff in it. We talked a little bit about a parasite that was found in bone recently in a Mm -hmm. sauropod bone. But yeah, coprolites also make sense. So in 2006, several types of parasite were found in coprolite. They're from the Bernassart Iguanodon shaft in Belgium. Hopefully I pronounced Bernassart right. I don't really know. It's an area of a coal mine, and the first iguanodon was excavated there in 1878. Since then, over 30 iguanodon skeletons have been recovered. Many of them are articulated and nearly complete. Yep, which is pretty cool. And iguanodon's one of the first three original dinosaurs. Yeah, so this is one of the ones we knew a lot about pretty early on, because 1878, the Bone Wars had already started, so we're starting to get a lot of stuff from North America, but... Yeah, 30 skeletons is amazing and obviously really helpful for learning about an individual species because you're not just working off one individual at that point. So which dinosaur, if I asked you, Sabrina, do you think would have produced this coprolite? With the parasites? Mm-hmm. Probably a carnivorous one. Just thinking in general, if you're eating meat, you're more likely to get some kind of parasite. Oh, interesting. Oh, but that makes me think I'm on the wrong track. Well, you're you're actually on the right track. I thought the reason you were going to say is because carnivore coprolites preserve more often because they have calcium from the bone they eat mm. in their diet, whereas the herbivores just kind of plop out a mushy compost-like thing that tends to decompose more. Well, also a good reason. We can <laughs> add that to my list. <laughs> okay, good. So you're right. They know that it was almost certainly a carnivore or at least an omnivore, because it contained, quote, fragments of bones and striated muscles, end quote. Hmm. So herbivores don't eat muscle most of the time. And they think it was probably a small to medium-sized carnivore based on the size of it. 
it wasn't big enough to be a huge predator. They think it was most likely a megalosaurus, and that dinosaur has been found in the Bernasart iguanodon shaft, so that makes sense. The second of the three original dinosaurs. Yeah, exactly. This is one of those important early sites. One other contender is a crocodilian. Those are also known to be in that shaft, but the coprolite in question doesn't have any fish scales or large bone fragments, which are both things you would expect from a crocodilian. All the crocodilians there were aquatic, so most crocodiles, period, ever, everywhere, eat a lot of fish. So not a single fish scale in there. It's pretty good evidence it probably wasn't a crocodile. So yeah, the best guess. It's not going to be an iguanodon, most likely, unless it was on a real <laughs> meat kick, I guess. And that would be pretty hard for them to hunt. So probably not. As far as the parasites go with the paleoparasitology, they found something that looks very similar to modern entamoeba, I think is how it's pronounced. This is a microbe that can cause dysentery in humans. So not a great thing to have in your digestive tract. Mm -hmm. They also found trematode eggs, which were probably in the group platyhelminth, which is the flatworm group. Trematodes usually split their life cycle between different animals. So weird. Yeah. These parasites are so crazy. So oftentimes, apparently, they split part of their life cycle in a vertebrate and part of their life cycle in a snail. Because why not? <laughs> yeah, there's something about snails that's useful for that phase, I guess. But one of the most common ones that we're familiar with are tapeworms, that the type of tapeworms that inhabit our intestines from time to time. And those transfer between cattle or pigs and humans. Hmm. So they spend part of their life cycle on us and part in cattle and pigs. So those are the first two. There's also a third type of parasite that they found in the coprolite, and that is nematode eggs. And nematodes are also known as roundworms. They're very small animals. They're not a bacteria or anything else. They're technically animals. They aren't even all parasites. Some of them actually consume fecal matter. So I was thinking maybe in this case, that could be what's happening. They might be basically the equivalent of a tiny worm dung beetle. Wait, so that's what a nematode is because all these years when I think of nematodes, I think of the animated series Doug. There's a nematode in there? There's some Is episodes. that their mascot or something? It's not the mascot. I think he's always searching for some nematodes, but oh. they depict them as these large creatures. That might have been in his imagination. I can't remember the details anymore. <laughs> yeah, nematodes, they come in a large variety of sizes. They cover basically the entire earth. They're in saltwater, freshwater. They're on land. They go deep underground. They're in arid deserts. They're apparently in very high densities in the tundra. There can be over a million individuals per square meter of dirt. I saw this quote from a guy who's like a nematodologist, and he was saying, if you removed all of the things from earth that aren't nematodes and just like could look at or if you just had vision that could only see nematodes, you'd just see the sort of like nematode covering on everything everywhere. Hmm. So, so it's like a lot like bacteria. Mm -hmm. We're just kind of everywhere all the time. And yeah, not all of them are parasites, but the ones that are parasites, there are different versions that are parasites for plants and there are parasites for animals. Basically, every type of animal does have a nematode that can be a parasite of it. So it's like one of the most ubiquitous things ever there were some quotes about 80% of life on Earth or animal life on Earth is nematodes. It's like this crazy abundant thing. Wow. It's all over the place. It is like bacteria. Yeah. So it shouldn't really be surprising that there was a nematode in this 
coprolite because there are nematodes everywhere. Unfortunately, though, they're notoriously difficult to tell apart without testing their DNA because they're just like these small, clear worms a lot of the time. But some of the parasitic species that live off animals are a little bit easier to identify because they can be a lot larger. This one is identified as being in the family Ascaridae, I think is how you say it. It's a type of intestinal parasite, not too surprising since it was found in coprolite. And Ascaris is one of the most common worms that affects people. Apparently over a billion people have this. And there's a closely related worm that also infects birds. So again, if it's in modern dinosaurs, it makes sense that it would be in ancient dinosaurs as well. It's really an intense worm. I'm not going to say anything more about it because it's in a lot of people and it's really gross. So I don't want to gross people out. But if you want to search for it, you can find all sorts of stuff about this. Hmm. And images. <laughs> yeah. It's sort it's like in the tapeworm variety of things, I would say, except this is a roundworm, not a tapeworm. Although, like I said, there were tapeworms potentially in this dinosaur as well. So lots of parasites going on. I couldn't quite tell how many coprolites they were looking at. There was one throwaway line they had where they were like, they mentioned 280 coprolites. Ooh. And I don't know if they mean 280 pieces or that there were 280 total or if they analyzed 280 individual coprolites in order to find these parasites. But yeah, potentially a lot of coprolites from this mine. And so maybe the parasites weren't all in the exact same spot. There are a couple really useful things about these parasites. They could be useful in identifying the coprolite maker because many parasites are species specific. Like I said, there's that tapeworm where it's in either cattle or pigs and humans, and it doesn't really go into a lot of other animals. So some of them are very specific. And so if you could find that exact same parasite in multiple coprolites, you could at least identify that all of those coprolites came from the same species, potentially. Or if you could associate one single coprolite with a skeleton and therefore know that it is the same individual that created that coprolite and then you could tie them all together with a parasite that could be super useful another thing this one might be a little bit of a stretch but it might be possible to identify mating seasons by using these <laughs> parasites <laughs> so it turns out that some parasites reproduce at the same time as their hosts interesting yeah they synchronize for some reason or another it's beneficial for the parasites and therefore if you could find these types of parasites in the dinosaurs you might be able to tell whether or not they were reproducing that's pretty weird to think about yes and i'm sure there are a bunch of other uses that i can't think of either but yeah, paleoparasitology. I'm really excited about it now. And in case you're wondering, paleoparasitology should date through the entire Mesozoic because I found at least one case of a parasite that predates dinosaurs. There is a case of tapeworm eggs that were found in a 270 million year old shark coprolite, which is in the Permian and therefore before the Mesozoic and when dinosaurs evolved. And that also means that every dinosaur could have gotten tapeworms as well, assuming that they had evolved the right sort of features to go after that specific species. So there's some paleoparasitology. Poor, poor dinosaurs and all the other animals living with parasites. Yeah, like humans. Yeah. And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe in your favorite podcast app so you don't miss out on any new episodes. 
And come join our growing community, patreon.com slash I know Dino. Thanks again, and until next time. Good day.